Today is the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks against the World Trade Center and Pentagon. Many of us can likely remember where we were 15 years ago, almost to this precise moment. And even as many of us will never forget the trauma of that morning, this morning, 15 years later, is also an opportunity to reflect on what the passing of 15 years means in our cultural memory. As difficult as it may be to comprehend for some of us, including myself, part of what the passage of time means is that nearly one-fifth, one-fifth of our current population was born after the attacks. A quarter of Americans, 25%, were too young to have any significant or meaningful memory of that day. Fifteen years means that all of those 18-year-old college freshmen entering you know, universities and colleges this fall, they were all three on September 11th, 2001. This anniversary year also means reflecting on the continuing impact of all that happened in response to the attacks. As devastating as that day was, almost 3,000 people killed, more than 6,000 injured. Our collective responses have had also a tremendous toll. Yes, we had to respond, but according to the Costs of War Project at Brown University, which has tracked the costs of the post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, over 370,000 people have died due to direct war violence and many more indirectly. That's a 100-fold death toll in response to what happened. More than 210,000 civilians have been killed. 7.6 million war refugees and displaced persons. The federal price tag here in the U.S. for the Iraq War alone is $4.8 trillion. $4.8 trillion, with a T, dollars, just for the Iraq War. The wars have been accompanied by violations of human rights and civil liberties in the U.S. and abroad. And the wars, we should be clear, did not result in inclusive, transparent, and democratic governments in Iraq or Afghanistan. Now, there have been many important books uh, written about both the 9-11 attacks and the impact of our response, and there are many significant angles to consider. I'm glad to give you a list of some of those books if you're interested in in going further into them. But in our limited time this morning, I'd like to spend just a few moments reflecting on the ways that a culture of what could be called toxic masculinity is one among many factors that both precipitated the attacks and triggered some of the most damaging aspects of our response. As we explored a few weeks ago in a sermon on gender liberation, the term masculinity does not necessarily correspond to biological anatomy. Instead, different ones of us find ourselves at different points at different times on that masculine to feminine continuum. And part of what I mean by toxic masculinity is that stereotype of cowboy swagger. That if a so-called real man is attacked, then he will respond with a violent, unemotional, strike first and ask questions later aggression in order to reestablish dominance and control. 
Looking back at the history of this country, historians have described our cultural primary model of masculinity as that of the self-made man. One of the problems with this model is that it creates a perpetual anxiety around proving one's manhood. If one's self-worth is produced on being a self-made man, then any failure brings one's manhood into question and must be avoided at all costs. Consider this observation from a sociologist trying to take a step back and look at American culture. In an important sense, there is only one complete, unblushing male in America. A young, married, white, urban, northern, heterosexual, Protestant, father with a college education, fully employed with a good complexion, weight and height, and a recent, not just a record in sports, a recent record in sports. Any male who fails to qualify for one in one or more of these ways is likely to view himself, during moments at least, as unworthy, as incomplete, and as inferior. I invite you to pause and just kind of run through the masculine-identified people in your life and the ways that they relate and how do they handle that anxiety around always feeling the pressure to prove themselves in all of those arenas. More broadly, with the changes to our economy uh, due to globalization and other factors, increasing numbers of men have experienced themselves as slipping farther and farther away from this alleged ideal of the self-made man. Moreover, at the same time, many of these ideals that all this pressure to conform to has been in place, all those same ideals have been being called into question by the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights movement, and more. The pressure to be a self-made man means that immigrants and women competing in the workforce can be experienced as an existential threat to one's manhood. Just look in the news in recent months, right, to see that dynamic. Ironically, the result is men who were supposedly so rational compared to the supposedly more emotional women, you see these rational men increasingly moving from this rationally controlled anxiety into anger and rage. The truth is that men are human beings. They're no less, uh, no less emotional than women. They're just more culturally conditioned to repress emotions. But when those repressed emotions, if they're ever released, they're explosive. And in recent decades, we've seen this exaggerated backlash of unapologetically politically incorrect magazines, radio hosts, television shows that have all seeded the ground for politically incorrect political movements. One of the most telling complaints is a white man angrily lamenting, just listen to any of these television shows or radio shows, you'll hear white men angrily lamenting that some other immigrant, minority, women stole my job. Can you hear the entitlement in that complaint? Um, do I don't know of any gentler, any gentler way to put it than that straight white men have become so accustomed to racism, sexism, and homophobia giving us an unfair advantage that equality can feel like oppression. But here's the truth. Loss of entitlement, loss of privilege, is not the same as reverse discrimination. 
To take a, de- a little deeper look beneath the surface, let me take a step back to share one of the biggest insights I've found, found from the field sometimes called men's studies or masculinity studies. Contrary to conventional wisdom, it turns out that masculinity is much less about the drive for power and domination and control. That's sort of what it's seen as typically. It turns out it's actually much more motivated by the fear of being dominated by others or others having power and control. Uh, Throughout American history, American men have been afraid that others will see us as less manly, as weak or timid, uh, frightened. And men have been afraid of not measuring up to some vaguely defined notions of what it means to be a man, afraid of failure, of being a self-made man. It turns out that American men define their masculinity not so much in relationship to women, but in relationship to other men. The real fear is of being ashamed and humiliated in front of other men. So much toxic masculinity, so much false swagger and unnecessary aggression and repressed emotion has resulted from seeking to mask and press down that fear of being ashamed or humiliated or just even having the risk of that. Some of you may recall a line from my sermon a few weeks ago that you might be able to lie, cheat, and steal your way to fame, success, and wealth, but vulnerability is the only path to love, belonging, and joy. And in far too many cases, all that fake cowboy bravado has prevented many men from being able to be honest about their emotions, their fear, their shame, their anger, their sadness, which means they can't even be honest about their joy. I suppose you can think of men in your life who are not even in touch with their happiness. The result has been so much unnecessary harm and damage and expense to self and others and so much lost opportunity for love and belonging. I should also note that although the model of being a self-made man has been particularly dominant in U.S. history, there are so many other possible models of masculinity. One historically dominant model in Europe uh, was finding one's self-worth in the life of the community and the qualities of one's character, some of those virtues that Scott was talking about. But due to the influence of the European Enlightenment um, preceding the American Revolution, by the time of the late 1700s and the American Revolution, the paradigm was shifting away from service to the community and toward individual achievement. So as a result, that pressure to be a self-made man, to go it alone as an individual, that has been particularly dominant in our culture since the beginning. But seeing the shifts in how masculinity has shifted over time can give us permission to explore how masculinity and our understandings of it can continue to evolve today in healthier directions. I'll briefly name just two more of my favorite examples of how much the ideals of masculinity have changed over time and through different cultures. First, if you go back to the mid-19th century, muscular men were considered less desirable because muscles indicated that you earned your living as a laborer. Consider two descriptions from that time. An American exquisite must not measure more than 24 inches around the chest really small. (laughs) I'm small, and I think that's small. Uh, His face must be pale and thin and long, and he must be 
spindle-shanked, meaning lean. We need to bring back that word, spindle-shanked. Uh, there is nothing our, here's the second quote, there is nothing our women dislike so much as corpulency, you know, big muscle Schwarzeneggers. Weak and refined are synonymous. Today, the opposite is the case. It turns out that men's interest in health and diet has matched women's interest in health and diet twice in our nation's history, at the turn of the century and today. From one sociological perspective, this shift is likely directly related to changes in the workplace. When, as our work has failed to be a place where men could prove their manhood, they started working out. And just as you can study the increasingly perverse um, beauty standards um, represented by Barbie dolls, for example, you can also take G.I. Joe's proportions and translate them into real-life statistics. In 1974, uh, G.I. Joe was 5 feet 10 inches tall, had a 31-inch waist, a 44-inch chest, and 12-inch biceps. Strong and muscular, but at least within the realm of the possible. By 2002, G.I. Joe is still 5 foot 10, but his waist is now shrunk to 28 inches. His chest has expanded to 50 inches, <laughs> twice that 19th century um, ideal, and his biceps are 22 inches, almost the size of his waist. Absurdly unrealistic. Now, to give just one more among many other popular examples, if you look back less than a century, here's an excerpt of a 1918 editorial. There's been a great diversity of opinion on the subject, but the generally accepted rule is pink for a boy and blue for a girl. This is 1918. You can still see it for a few decades after this. The reason is that pink is being is a decided and stronger color and is more suitable for a boy, while blue is more delicate and dainty and prettier for the girl. Fascinatingly, you know, red was a hotter color and pink was a variation of hot. Anyway, fascinatingly, the reasons these colors switched in ensuing decades is not fully clear. But the upshot is that so much of gender politics has occurred for these sort of somewhat arbitrary, historically contingent reasons. And the fact that our conceptions of gender have changed so much over time should embolden us that they can continue to change in the directions of equality. And this shift is really vital for all of us. To quote a passage about men from um, Betty Friedan's uh, classic, The Feminine Mystique, she writes, How could we ever really know or love each other as long as we keep playing at these roles that keep us from knowing and being ourselves? Weren't men as well as women still locked in lonely isolation and alienation? Weren't men dying too young? suppressing their fears and tears and their own tenderness. It seemed to me that men weren't really the enemy, they were the fellow victims, suffering from an outmoded masculine mystique. And they needed to trade, and to, that to trade the men um, felt unnecessarily inadequate when there were no bears left to kill. Do any of you know the singer-songwriter Dar Williams? Okay, a few of you. Uh, if you have a chance later today, I encourage you to Google her song, When I Was a Boy. It's a lament about moving from the freedom that she experienced as a young boy who loved being, uh, as a young girl who loved being a tomboy, to all the restrictions that were imposed on her as her body became increasingly viewed through a gendered lens at puberty. 
No longer could she climb trees and get grass stains and ride her bike around shirtless. Instead, she was told she always had to look pretty, that she would now be arrested if she took her shirt off, and that the world had become so dangerous for her as a post-pubescent woman that she should just find a nice man to walk her home. In the closing stanza of that song, she confesses to her boyfriend, I give up, I have lost, and you have won, meaning men have won. But he surprises her and says, oh no, can't you see? When I was a girl, my mom and I, we always talked, and I picked picked flowers everywhere that I walked, and I could always cry. Now, even when I'm alone, I seldom do, and I've lost some kindness, but I was a girl too, and you were just like me, and I was just like you. To share just one final thought from UU history, so much of the self-made man stuff, too, is a lie, right? All of what Emerson, that rugged individualist, all of his writings, it's all because, you know, his wife was cooking his meals and his daughters were cleaning the house and Thoreau wasn't just out there. Walden Pond was on Emerson's land. He was going into town all the time. He was having dinner with Emerson. Like, all this stuff is messier and more complex than we're often told. So we don't have to wear these masks that people tell us we have to wear. So much is unlocked. So much becomes possible if we choose to continue our journey in love. If we care for one another and care for this one earth. If we do justice and make peace. So as you go from this place, whatever taste or touch you've had of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.